and they go out <laughs> with that video. But uh, welcome. Uh, we are continuing our series on uh, the book of Romans. We're at uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through uh, 21. Um, before we go and, and read this um, passage, uh, you know, we have our membership uh, next week. And so last week I had a chance to uh, speak at the, uh, the membership class and and my role in, in that uh, membership class is to kind of share with them why they should get married, should they get married, uh, married, get, uh, or married to the church, but, but should they uh, be up, become a member, is it biblical? And, and so one of the things that I try to do, I try to get to know them a little better. And so, you know, I ask everyone, hey, what's your name, what's your occupation, what school, and things like that. But there's also one unique thing that I, I you know, want everyone to share. Uh, and so the, the question was, um, you know, who is the most famous person? Uh, that you have ever met or been at least close to. And so, you know, they went around and, you know, they said, you know, LeBron, uh, Kobe, uh, and then one person said uh, Jesus Christ, and so everyone felt bad after they said their things. Um, and so my one, mine was um, Michael Jackson. So I know some of you who are younger um, don't really realize how big he was, but people my age, <laughs> in your 40s and maybe in your 50s, um, went through that whole Michael Jackson stage, he was like the biggest thing uh, ever, um, you know, and, and so we were, I was in college, I believe, and, and we were, I was with a, a bunch of friends, and we just saw uh, a, a weird kind of a group, you know, there's people everywhere, but there was this one uh, group of people coming, and there, it was like, it was like a circular thing, where there was like a barrier, um, and so we kind of, you know, peeked and said, what's going on? This must be someone special because they were like seriously like bodyguards around and making a, like almost a semicircle as this person in the middle and a few of his friends were walking and we looked and it was, uh, and goes, hey, that's Michael Jackson. And so, uh, so you know, we were all kind of starstruck, uh, especially one of my friends. And my friend is, is a little louder than, than I am. I'm more quiet. And says, oh, look, that's Michael Jackson, right? And he was close as the, the person in the bag there. That's how close right? we looked. And, and all of a sudden, my friend, as loud as he can, okay, he yells out, I love you, Michael. Right? And, and, and not only once, but he just kept on yelling, I love you, Michael. I love you, Michael. And we're like looking at him and says, are you kidding me? He can stop embarrassing us, right? But he couldn't help himself. He really loved Michael Jackson uh, and, and the songs. And that word love, um, some, you know, I was looking at him and goes, do you really love him? You don't even know that guy. You just know his songs. But we use that love in, in so many places, from, from the highest where we say we love God to we love our families to, you know, I, I love chocolate milk. I love corn. You know, I love going to this place. And so this world, in, in our, in, just in our language, we use that word love in so many different places that it can be defined in any way you want. But I think as believers who sit here and come and worship and say that Jesus Christ is my Lord, we have to be careful in how we define what love is. So we have to define love in the way that the Bible describes love. Because if we don't, then loving corn, which I do, I really like corn, <laughs> and, 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 and then is that the same as loving God? And so we have to be careful, and we have to make sure that we define love in the way that God defines love. 
And so we see in this passage, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, is one of Paul's exposition on love. He has another famous one in 1 Corinthians 13. We always think of Paul as the guy who, who preaches the doctrine. You know, Romans is the, one of the hardest books to read, difficult for preachers to preach. But if you look carefully at his books, his epistles, what you realize is that love is as, is as prominent as a sovereignty of God, in the way he writes. And I, I, think, I think the reason why is it was more personal for him. I think for him, because before he became a Christian, before Christ encountered him, he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He was the one that went out and led the people to say, hey, let's go get these Christians. Let's persecute them. Let's, go, let's stone them. And he was rebelling against God, hating the Christians and hating Christ, and that's where he was until Jesus Christ met him on that road to Damascus. And his whole world changed. To think that, that God and Jesus Christ will love a person like Paul, who himself calls the worst of sinners, that he would die for a person like Paul, only love could explain that. And for him, I think it was just a personal thing that, that, re, that the love of Christ, which changed him to say, if God loves me this much, I must love others. And so in, in chapter uh, 12, in verse 9, he, he, he starts with, let love be genuine. But before we go into that passage, uh, let's summarize a little bit of what's been going on in, in the book of Romans. Uh, chapters 1 through chapter 11, Paul ex expounds um, all about what Christ has done, God's sovereignty, about his choosing his, his people, about what he did on the cross. So he, exp he expounds chapter 11, it's doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. Chapter 12 through 16 is when it seems like he makes a turn and, and starts talking about the Christian life. Last week you learned about, about the gifts that he, he gives out uh, so that you could uh, serve others. And now he turns to uh, love and hospitality and, 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 and all these things, that the Christian life. And, and he does it strategically in all of his books. If you see all of his epistles, you'll see doctrine first and then all the how to live. And, and theologians call it the, the indicative and then the imperative, meaning that he states, the indicatives are, are the statements of what is true. Then based on that, he gives the imperatives, the commands of God. And he realizes this, is that in order for you to follow Jesus Christ, follow all of his commands, especially this command to love, you need all of his grace. If you don't have all of his grace and you're given this passage in chapter 1 and you look at all, he has 40 imperatives in here. And you look at that, you become overwhelmed and you become burdened. I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to give. But he starts off with the indicative telling you what Christ has done. All of the grace that is for you. And when you have all of grace in you and you are filled with God's love, then you are able to love others. You are able to uh, empty yourself in one sense to others because Christ constantly fills your heart 
with his love. We love because he has first loved us. And we have to start that way when we look at this passage. And I'm going to refer to it back again and again. And he refers to it back again and again. As it says, love, then you're reminded of God's love for you, so then you're able to follow this command. So what he does in this passage, in, in verses 9, the first part, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 9, he gives the character of love. He doesn't really define love like Apostle John does when he says God is love. But he gives you the character of love, what love is, okay, like. And then in verses 10 through 13, he goes and tells you how love is manifested in the church. And then he takes a turn in verse 14 through 21 and says, how is love manifested outside the church? So verse 10, he describes what, uh, the character of love. In verses 9 through 13, he tells you how is it manifested in the church and then in verses 14 to 21, how it's manifested outside the church. Now, this is not a comprehensive thing. There's, there's more to it. Uh, you look at 1 Corinthians 13, look at Ephesians. There's more the things that he does say. But in this particular passage, we're going to go over as much as we can, because there's, like I said, 40 things in here. As much as we can, some of the things um, that Paul espouses here. And so he begins with the character of love. The first thing that we notice, or the, the, the overarching, overarching thing about the character is that love is based on truth. There's two things here. Love must be genuine, and then abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Those are connected. There's a, it's one, a, same side of the coin, or a different side of the coin. So there's two things here, but both of these are based on the fact that love is based on the truth. Because when it says love, let love be genuine, this word genuine is um, literally without hypocrisy. Um, so love must be without hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is all about falsehood, concealment, you know, uh, cloaking, it's misleading, it's lying, it's, it's hiding. Uh, but ultimately, hypocrisy, we become hip- hypocrites because we want people to make much of us. That's why we become hypocrites at times, because we want people to make much of us. That's why we hide things. That's why we don't reveal when, when we are, are, are sinning or, or when we are, 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 are more, morally uh, not good. We don't share those things with people. We put a good face towards it. We, think, we tell them everything is fine, because we want people to look at us and say, hey, that's a good Christian. He's living a good life. And so we don't share all the negative or the weaknesses. We want to hide that from people. And it's simply because we want people to make much of us. And, and, and therefore, we want people to love us. And that will be our primary goal. We become hypocrites because we want people to love us. We want people to like us. We want to, people to think highly of us. But that's a lie when we do this. And then our love becomes insincere. So what Paul starts is he says, love must be sincere. And he never hid the fact that he says, I'm the worst of sinners. You think you're bad? Look at my life. I used to persecute Christians. He didn't hide any of that stuff. 
Why did he not hide that stuff? Because he was content in the fact that he had Christ's love. And he, were, he was able to reveal all of, their, all of his weaknesses. And at the same time, he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor is that, it's, it, the literal word, word is, is a horrified. Be horrified by evil and at the same time, hold fast. And, and the, let's get the literal word is glue yourself uh, to goodness. So be horrified by what is evil and be glued to what is good. Um, it doesn't just care about our behavior uh, here. He cares about our emotions too. He wants in our hearts, he wants us to get upset at the evils that are happening in this world. He, he, doesn't, want to, uh, he doesn't want us to just uh, look at you know, the good things. He wants us to embrace it. He wants us to love it. He wants us to feel this goodness. See, real love, if you want to get it, real love does not love everything. It can't. If you don't, can't differentiate between what is evil and, and good and you start loving everything, then you're not where God is. If you love everything and you don't realize the evils in this world and you don't hate the sin, then you're not looking at the things that God is looking at. God is clear when he sees sin. God is clear when he sees, when he sees love or, or good. And we need to have the same mindset as God. We can't be indifferent, or uh, we can't be just tolerant of what good and evil is. And, and a prime example is, um, you know, when we, have ch- when we raise our kids. Uh, when we raise our kids, we love them. We, we do. And, and as a parent, a lot, of, a lot of you guys are parents, we love our, our kids. But as we're raising them, if we are not disciplining them for the bad things that they're doing, out of the guys that we are loving them and we give them everything that even contribute to their sin and because we love them, we want to give them everything, then we are not loving them. Or we, maybe we are loving them, but our primary goal is that we want them to love us. If we're, not, if we're scared to discipline our children when they do something wrong, and the only reason why we don't do that because we're afraid that they'll dislike us. We're afraid that they might hate us. We're afraid that they might love us. So we give in to some of the sins that they commit. We don't call them out. We don't discipline them. And therefore, our primary goal becomes we want them to love us more than we love them. It's just hypo- it's something as hypocrisy. We want them to make much of us. We want, we want to receive rather than to give. And so this love, uh, the way he describes it, is exactly the way the gospel is portrayed and how the gospel uh, displays love. Look at the greatest demonstration of love that has ever happened. You know, if you're a believer in here, and you, the answer is simple. The greatest demonstration of love is on that cross when Christ died for us. And clearly you see love in Christ, right? You know, God, you know, Christ loving all of us, but you see sin as clear. You see the evil as clear as the love of Jesus Christ because he's dying because of the sins of this world. 
because of the ugliness that we have in our heart, that's why Christ came. He can differentiate between sin and good. And if, and if we don't recognize the evils in this world or the sin in our lives and others, then we can't understand the full extent of God's love. So we need to be able to see the truth, differentiate between good and evil. And so those are the characters uh, uh, that, that Paul describes. Love must be sincere. Love must be based on the truth. So with that, he comes to uh, verse 10, and then he describes uh, the, 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 how love is manifested in the church in here. Uh, like I said, this is not comprehensive, but this is what he says. He starts off saying, love one another with brotherly affection. And so he basically says that this is a family. This is a family affair, the, the church. It is not just a group of people getting together on Sunday to worship God but this is a family getting together. And this was unheard of in those days when he wrote this because no other religion back in those days will ever tell somebody, hey, the way you love your family member, the way you are loyal to them, the way that you care for them, the way you do everything for them, treat the people that you see on Sundays the same way. The love that you have for your family, that love that cash in all the care, the way you do, treat your family, Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ the same way. Have this brotherly uh, affection. So don't, when, when, you, when love is manifested in the church, in our church, we have to manifest it like we do it in our families, in the way we care for our, our parents, in the way we care for our kids, in the way we love our, our spouses. Okay? Maybe not in equal sense because we are with our families you know, 24-7, but when we come, we want to share it. And I think Paul uses this family illustration because of, of the permanency of this image. It's not like you can just leave your family just because. And it's not like you can't, you have, because you, if you're in a family, you feel like responsible, right, to take care of them. And one little mistake that they make, you don't dismiss them. You're not part of my family. Like if my kids, you know, make, make a mistake or they do something wrong, I, I don't ban them from the chief family. <laughs> And says, you're not part of my family anymore. Go away, get out of the house, you know, uh, live on the street. I don't do that. Even if they do it a hundred billion times, I would never set my family off uh, to outside. You know, I, I tell my kids that, you know, uh, once in a while, I, I tell them, you know what, some of the things that you guys do uh, are, are, are not good. And sometimes I'm going to dislike what you do. And sometimes I'm going to have to, uh, you know, punish you. And I have to set the restrictions. But I tell them at the end, at the very end, um, that doesn't mean that I, I, I don't love you. I will always love you, no matter what you do. And I make sure that they understand that, that last part, that they, they, can, they could hate me almost, and I, which I don't want them to, but my love for them will never stop. And I think that's why this, this image is used by Paul, because our, our natural reaction is if a friend does something bad to us, we can just cut them off and say, you're not, you're not my friend anymore. But you can't do that with a family. And so he's saying, do, you can't do that with, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. They'll, they'll, fall, they'll, they'll mess up. They'll annoy you at times. But yet, you still have to love them with a brotherly uh, affection. Uh, devote yourself to them. It, it is a family affair. And, and this one kind of leads into the other one where it says, outdo one another in showing 
honor. It's like a, it's like a competition. You have to love others. It's like almost a competition between brothers and sisters. How can I honor you more than you honor me? How can I love you more than you, um, more than, uh, you love me? And so it's almost a, a competition of I desire to serve you more than I desire to be uh, served. And there's a, a, in, in verse 11, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. It says don't be a lazy Christian in loving one another. Try to outdo one another. Do it with zeal. Serve the Lord by serving one another. You know, what, what kind of church would it be, an awesome church, if we try to outdo one another in serving and loving one another? What a beautiful picture of what God wants us to be. Because God doesn't just transform the individual. He, I mean, he does. He transforms the individual. He, he wants you to grow as a Christian. But as he transforms that individual, he places them in a church so that you can see a beautiful picture of what the church will be. It's not only the individual that, that God cares about, but it is also the church. So he is not only transforming you for the purpose of you growing in Christ, but he's transforming you more and more into his image so that the church will grow uh, into a, a loving family. You go on in verse 12, it says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Uh, and that middle term, be patient in tribulation, it says, love is patient. You know, people think that loving is easy. It's not, right? You guys can, if you really think about it, uh, to love somebody is not. To love somebody who loves you back 100% is easy. <laughs> it is. You know, uh, to, to love somebody, to care about somebody when they care about you, that's the easy part of love. Love becomes hard when it's that annoying person <laughs> um, that's at church. Or and love is hard when you just don't like them. You just don't. Maybe you have a past. Maybe they did something to you. Love becomes difficult. Now, when you, can you stop loving them? No. The Bible says, no, you got to keep on loving them. Love is patient. You can't give up. Once again, going back to family, you can't give up, uh, you can't give up on them. On them. And, and, but this patience, being patient, is not alone. In patience, you have hope and prayer attached to it. The patience is in the middle, but he says, you rejoice in the hope first, then be patient in tribulation, then do it, keep it going with constant prayer. Rejoice in hope. Hope in what? Hope that the other person will love you back or treat you better? No, because that may never happen. But rejoice in the hope that God has given you. You know, one of the things that, the thing that you see after Paul says, do this and this and this, you say, okay, I have to do this, this. I'm emptying, I'm emptying, giving, giving, giving. Well, what about me? What about me? Why won't somebody love me? Why won't somebody take care of me? And the simple answer is, there is somebody taking care of you. There is somebody loving you, and that's Jesus Christ. And he will love you. He will care for you more than you can possibly imagine. You give a drop to somebody, a drop, of, a drop of water to somebody, he fills your heart with an ocean filled water. And that's what you need to realize, and that's what Paul realized. That's why he gives out one after another after another, rejoicing the hope, the hope from Christ that gives you. And how do you constantly be reminded of it? By praying. By praying for the person, for yourself, and reminding yourself that God is uh, the one. 
who gives you all things. The last, it says, um, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, give to others. You know, this word contribute is actually the word for fellowship. Uh, so you can even read it, fellowship uh, with the needs. of It doesn't sound right, but what, it, what Paul is trying to say is, when you give to somebody that's a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you become instantly um, uh, spiritually intimate with that person. And what I mean, and the example of that is, when you give a, uh, you know, a check or money to people going on missions, right? They ask you for money, and then you give that money. And you're not just giving a, a check. You're not giving just money to them so they can buy a plane ticket so they can go. No, it's always, if you read the letter carefully, what they'll say is that you are joining me in my endeavor. You're joining me in my mission. So when you actually give yourself, whatever, monetary time, whatever, when you give yourself to your fellow brother and sister in Christ, whatever cause that they have becomes yours. And you become spiritually intimate with them. You become part of the purposes of God for their life. So you are giving to them, but you're not giving, you're joining them in in what doing. So that is, that is it. Those are the uh, uh, few things that Paul says, this is how love is manifested in the church. Now, before we go into verse 14, how does the gospel help us to do this? You know, what is the key to following this, to serving, to giving? Well, let's look at the, the last part, contributing to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a rule or there was a command by God that says, if you have a stranger, it says, if you have a stranger, treat them well. Take care of them. If there's a foreigner, take care of them. And it actually says, show hospitality. It's Leviticus um, 19. It says, show hospitality. And the reason why God says, do this for the stranger, he says, because I am the Lord your God. It is not just showing hospitality or giving to the needs out of your own goodness, but because, because I am the Lord your God. That's how the Ten Commandments starts. I am the Lord your God who saved you out of slavery. So what, what Leviticus is saying and what Paul is saying here is show hospitality, give to the others because I am the Lord your God who showed you hospitality because you were a stranger and I have embraced you into my family patience. Do I even need to say anything about patience, how God is patient with us, and how rebellious at times, and how stubborn we are, but yet God shows patience with us. Should we not do the same? Others first, isn't that what the gospel is? Isn't that what Jesus Christ did? Others first, to think of them instead of think of, them, think of himself that he showed humility, he emptied himself to come and save sinners like us? What about the first one, the family affair? You know, if you read John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, you know, if you become a Christian, basically I'm paraphrasing, if you become a Christian, you have the right to become a child of God. You're adopted into his family. And you don't fully realize how important of a statement that is until you go back to the cross and see one of Christ's last cries. You know, Elo, Elo, I think that was correct. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you, if you think about his statement and, and, and the cry on that cross, something is left out of that cry. 
at every single moment, if you look at the book of Matthews, at every single moment, when Jesus refers to God, when he addresses God, he always calls him Father. In all of all the book of Matthew, he calls him Father. Father, the Father do this. Only one place on that cross, he says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't cry out, my Father, my Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, because of all the sin that was being poured upon Jesus Christ, our sin, to him, God ceased to be his father at that moment. Why? He does this so that we can become the children of God, as John tells us. The fact that I just say that this is a family affair it's not just a, a, a flippant statement that I just make. There's, there's power. There is a great thing, that, thing that, that, it, that I'm saying. It is not a simple statement. For us to be, treat each other as family, it caused the death of the eternal God of heaven. And if we realize that, and when we realize that we are becoming not only family here, but God is our father, Christ is our elder brother, then we realize how important the family thing is and how we should love our family and how we should follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. And so that's how we should treat each other. But how about outside the church? And then he goes in verse 14 through 21. And he says, he starts off and says, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. So obviously it seems like this is not talking about uh, the church, but it's probably talking about some, you're outside and you're being persecuted. But the, but the Greek statement is, bless those who persecute you. It's, it's in the words of Jesus because he said the same thing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, it, it's, it's a statement that you probably heard before, but the statement hard to swallow and practice. How can I bless those who persecute me? Well, as, as hard as it is, this is what he commands. He says, wherever you go, in particular to a place where it's hostile to you, bring blessing to that place. Do not bring curse. I know your natural reaction is to retaliate, to, to fight against, to, to crush those who persecute you. But Jesus and Paul here says, bless them. Bring blessing to that situation. You don't really fully understand this until you go back to the Old Testament when this blessing and curse is a language that's used, especially in the book of Deuteronomy. Where God uses the word bless and, and, and curse in the context of salvation. He says, I will bless you if you follow the commandments. And I will curse you. If you don't follow me and I will kick you out of the land of Canaan, you will be a blessing if you obey me, if you reach curse. So this is all in the context of salvation language. And in the New Testament, if we bring it to the New Testament and Paul uses the blessing and the cursing language, what he is saying is bring the blessings of salvation to every single situation that you face. Simply bring the gospel to the situation. Rather than bringing your hate, bringing your justice, bring the gospel to this situation. And then he goes on and gives an example of how this works out. He says, 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. How do I bring this blessing to any situation? Well, when you go, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The second part is easy. Weep with those who weep. That's the easy part. No, I'm not saying easy, but that's something that we can do, feel like we can do. We go to a funeral. If somebody is, is saddened by something, we can sit there and cry with them. We can sit there and care for them and seeing what they need because they have just lost something, right? And we can sympathize with them. But rejoice with those who rejoice is a lot harder. And here's what I mean, okay? We can rejoice with someone who rejoice if, let's say, they, let's say you know, let's use an example of, of students getting a grade. So both work hard, somebody gets an A, somebody gets a D, okay? And the Bible says, in a, in a, in a, uh, the person who has a D must rejoice with the, with the person who gets an A. They say, no way. <laughs> I'm not going to rejoice. I can do the fake rejoice. Hey, good for you. You got one. And the friends ask you, what'd you get? Oh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I got something. Because <laughs> you, you don't want to share because they got something that you don't have. So it's hard to rejoice. With the weep, with the weep, that's okay. Because you haven't lost anything. And if you have lost and they lost something, you can, be, you can sympathize together. But we rejoice. You can do that in a marriage or a wedding ceremony. Somebody's getting married. You rejoice. But if you are, if you're wanting to get married and you, you just can't find the right person and you're saddened by that, it's hard to rejoice with that person. You can give the fake smile and you can celebrate, but it's hard to rejoice. But God says, when you go, Rejoice. And weep with those who weep and rejoice with them. How can you do that? The only way you can do that is if you're filled with joy already. If you have everything in Christ, you do. You have everything in Christ. That's what the gospel says. You have all the spiritual blessing. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. And if you have that, they got the A, you got the D. Why well, got Jesus? <laughs> Okay? I may be sad about the D, but I can still rejoice that you got an A. This person's getting married. I'm not getting, I want to get married, but ultimately my marriage is with Christ. Yes, I'm still saddened by the fact that I'm not married, but yet yeah, I can rejoice because I have Christ. The gospel helps us to, you know, bring blessing to every situation. It all says, live in harmony. It says, bring harmony to any situation. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Although it doesn't say it in English so much, but if you read the original language, there's three places where it says think, think, think. There's three times where it says think. It's, so it says think of a certain thing. Think a certain way, and you'll be able to rejoice with rejoice. You'll be able to live in harmony. And what Paul says here is, as it says, live in harmony with one another, the reason why you don't live in harmony with one another is because, if I want to read it backwards, it's because you are prideful. And it's because you, are, you associate with the lowly. That's why you can't live in harmony. What Paul is saying here is, when you, live in, when you, when you tr- strive to live in harmony, what Paul is saying is that you need to think of everyone in the same way that they are all equal. Once you believe that everyone is equal, then you are able to live in harmony with them. But when you come into a situation where you're pride, and here's the thing, when you believe that somebody is beneath you, 
when you can't live in harmony. When you feel like they are too young for me to hang out with them, causes division. When you say, I am wealthy, they are not. You may not say it out loud, but if you say, I am wealthy, they are not, it's hard. If you have that thinking, if you believe that this person is not a good Christian, and you feel like you are, and you bring to that, it's difficult to live in harmony with them. How do you get the right thinking that no one is beneath you? It is only with Christ and how he sees you. You see, Christ did not think that we were beneath him, that we weren't worth it. Christ didn't think that we were less than him or less so that he won't show his love to us. And we go out and we think that people are beneath us. They're they're not worthy of our time. That is not living in harmony with them. Because Christ, Christ thought of us lowly people. And here's the thing. He didn't think we were beneath him that he kept his love from us. So he calls us. Don't think that anyone is beneath you. And don't ever think than anyone is beneath your love. Live in harmony with one another. And the last one, I know there's a lot here, the last one is bring grace to any situation. You know, it gives us all, it's about don't, don't be vengeful. You know, let, let God, leave room for God's wrath. Don't retaliate evil for evil. You know, it says, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Um, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on, your, on his head. It, to be honest, no one really knows what that means, <laughs> burning coals on your head. Uh, do not overcome uh, by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know how we um, overcome evil with good? It's to bring the gospel into the situation. It's to see how God dealt with evil at first. He will deal with evil later. But when I talk about evil, I'm talking about sin so much, sin. How do you deal with the sin? When, when, when we, like I said, whenever we, you know, are called to love others and we look at each other, we have to bring Christ into the situation. As we bring Christ into the situation, how did God overcome evil? How did he overcome it with good? Because we were, we were sinful. When Christ died for us, he didn't think of us as, oh, these beautiful people that I'm going to die for. These wonderful people that are going to love me every single day if I die for them. No, he looked at all of us and saw the ugliness of our sin. He saw the evil in our, in our lives. And he also knew because he is God and he knows all things. He knew that even though he may die for us and give himself for us, that we will still rebel. That we will still be reluctant to receive, embrace his love and his sacrifice. He knew that. He knew that evil, but he overcame it with good. He overcame it by saying to the Father, 
God the Father and to us, even though, even though you are my enemies, I will demonstrate my love for you. In the end, all of these imperatives that we see has to be based on Christ's love for us. There's a lot of stuff, and I know you've probably forgotten some of the stuff in the, in the, in the front uh, when we talk. I, I know you have. But I encourage you to read it again anew with saying every single thing. Love must be genuine. God was genuine with me. Do not be slothful in zeal and serving others in the Lord. God wasn't slothful to me. Love one another with brotherly affection. Don't just read that. In there, read, God loved me to make me his child, a child. Bless those who persecute you. Don't read that alone. Read it with God. Should have. Uh, we are persecuting. We persecuted him, yet he chose to die for us. Again and again, read. Read with the gospel ever before you. And then you will see that all of these imperatives, not only will you do them, but you will do them with joy. Because he himself, even though he saw the cross and Hebrew tells us, he himself said, even though all of these things I'm going to do the cross, he did it, knowing that there is joy in the end. So I would encourage you to do that. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, um, there's, so, there's so many things that you're telling us to do in this passage, Lord.